Politicians and pundits all across Canada are now talking about cryptocurrency. But who is telling us the truth? We're going to try to make sense of it all today on the show. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. So as you know, I was pretty critical of last week's conservative debate in Edmonton. I didn't think it really allowed for much of an exchange of ideas. However, one of the most interesting and explosive moments of the debate happened when the candidates began criticizing and piling on Pierre Polyev for his positions about crypto. It seemed like some of the candidates didn't really understand the difference between decentralized currencies like Bitcoin um, versus a government uh, centralized uh, digital currency. And you could see that Pierre Polyev was kind of smiling because it really showed almost like a generational divide where most of the candidates, I would say five out of six, just don't really understand Bitcoin or blockchain or cryptocurrencies. And Pierre sort of has a monopoly on this topic. And so I wanted to bring in someone today to help make sense of this entire topic and help us understand what, what the real issue is. And so I'm very pleased today to be joined by Matt Spoke Matt is one of the leading experts in conservative circles when it comes to cryptocurrency. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Moves, which is an all-in-one financial app that helps gig workers manage their business. Matt is based in Toronto, and he's become a leading advocate for the potential social benefits of decentralized technologies in the world. He's been published in Forbes, The Hub, and other outlets, and you may... Um, may recognize his name. We had his brother, Chris, spoke on a couple weeks ago. Chris also is a uh, policy advocate. He writes in Hub as well, and he talks about housing policy. So, Matt, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for yeah, joining awesome us. Yeah, awesome to be here. Good to be here, Malcolm. So, so let's let's just start off by asking like a very sort of basic question. For people who don't really aren't really familiar with these terms, don't really know what we're talking about, if you could help us understand like what is blockchain, what is decentralized currency? What is crypto? And uh, what is Bitcoin? Just give us a little overview, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the without getting into the technical weeds, because there's you'll you'll read a lot of stuff online that gets into language that most people will just glaze over at because it's it's a it's a very technically heavy or te a lot of technical jargon in this industry. Um, I'd say broadly, the idea that sort of underpins Bitcoin and a lot of the experiments happening in the cryptocurrency space is sort of a concept of building a currency system that is detached from any central authority or detached from the central government that acts as sort of the issuing body of a currency or, or the, the, the layer of trust underpinning a currency. Um, there's a technology that underpins a lot of these currencies that sort of broadly become known as blockchain technology. Uh, it is important to understand that this is sort of like, it's not, all of these currencies are not equal. There are, there are some currencies that have been around and proven the resilience for a lot longer. There are some that are a lot more experimental. Uh, you'll hear lots of negative sort of skeptics in the in, in the media that talk that, that will point to the examples of some of the more uh, you know more some of the more uh, the, the the big news items of frauds and scams and Ponzi schemes and others to try to d distract people from sort of like what is the underlying technology and what's its what's its potential. Um, I, I think broadly, I, I like to think about this as like as people lose confidence in their governments, not necessarily. Um, you know, their government's ability to, to, uh, to maintain sovereignty over their countries, but just their government's ability to make good decisions, good decisions as it relates to monetary policy. Um, we're now being given a choice as to are there other 
assets that we can flee into. Uh, and I'd say particularly Bitcoin has proven itself quite resilient and almost uh, it's it's almost on a level playing field with a lot of national currencies. If you if you were a resident of Venezuela, you know, Bitcoin would be a very attractive currency for you. Uh, there's lots of debate around whether that translates to Canadians and whether that translates to Americans and other Western countries. But um, I, I think there is something to be paying attention to. And I think the risk that the conservatives, uh, you know, last week really started to show is you, you want to be careful to not position yourself as sort of the party of the neophytes like that anything that you don't understand and anything that is new uh, you automatically take a negative tone towards it and, and I think Pierre is definitely standing out as somebody who at least you know not only has an open mind I think he actually very fundamentally understands what's going on in this space um, but anyways we can get into it in more depth but uh, that'd be my word of caution is like if you don't understand something it's better to not have an opinion than a strong opinion against it so uh, yeah well and and also just to make sure that the points that you're making are clear because there's obviously a big difference between a decentralized currency. We could talk about some of the pros and cons about those, like um, versus what the governments are trying to do, which is is roll out their own sort of version of digital currency. So we'll we'll, we'll definitely talk about government's version of digital currency. But I do want to ask you because you know you said if you live in a country like Venezuela, uh, might be better to use Bitcoin as opposed to decentralized currency. Well, uh, as we've seen this month, the price of Bitcoin has plunged to its lowest since 2020, according to the New York Times. More than 300 billion dollars of Coinbase was wiped out in a crash in crypto prices. Look, I've been following Bitcoin for maybe about 10 years. And I, I remember back in like 2015, people were saying, oh, oh Bitcoin's over, it's done. And we, there's definitely been ups and downs and and, and it's been a wild ride. Uh, but but there, there does seem to be sort of a fundamental instability when it comes to the value. So I'm wondering if you could help clarify like wh why you think it could be a better alternative to a government managed government monopoly um you know uh, of, of just a regular currency that we that we've had for the last uh 50 50 years or so yeah and, and i mean i think it's worth being clear here and I, and I this has probably been lost in the shuffle as it relates to the conservative leadership race um i don't think anybody is suggesting that we drop the canadian dollar and i'll start paying for our groceries in bitcoin i don't think that that's in the cards today i don't think that that's in the cards for the foreseeable future maybe ever I think what Bitcoin is introducing to the world is a new form of, of asset that can exist within a portfolio of assets similar to gold historically. Um, as assets are ex uh, discovered by the market, um, their prices can be extremely volatile, right? So this is, a, this is an asset that by global um, sort of penetration metrics is only scraping under 5% of people in the world that have actually touched or you know, held a Bitcoin or held a fraction of a Bitcoin. We're very much in the early days of global adoption. Um, and as people discover the asset in some periods that will lead to very high volatility and upward price momentum. And as markets sort of correct, that can lead to very aggressive volatility downwards. I think anybody interacting with this space needs to go in eyes wide open and, and consider that there is a lot of risk when assets, newer assets like this can be volatile for a long time. Um, I think what's to, to sort of decouple the conversation as to like, what is the price of Bitcoin today? What was it last week? Was it last year? Versus what does the long-term potential of this new type of currency design represent in the future? We should be thinking about policy from the perspective of like the next decades, not the next month. Uh, and I think we've seen a lot of this sort of distraction from, you know, I, I got an email from Patrick Brown's campaign last week talking about, oh, you know, if you had listened to Pierre Polyev, you would have put all of your dollars into Bitcoin and lost 50% of your life savings. Nobody is advocating for that right now. So um, it's it's really like the long-term potential. When you go from 5% adoption to 30% adoption to 50% adoption, all of a sudden the volatility associated with this asset will change quite a bit. Um, it's also worth noting that while the markets for Bitcoin have corrected aggressively, so have the markets for every other regulated traditional asset in the world. I mean, the, the price of stock on Netflix and 
and Shopify and, and, other, and all these other companies are also feeling a lot of pressure as the market's correct. And I would say um, that the cause of a lot of that is actually government monetary policy. I mean, it's the amount of money that we've inflated and put into the system that effectively fueled this huge run-up in the stock markets that had sort of a trickle-down effect into the crypto markets. And now all of a sudden, governments are starting to pull back on their money printing. They're starting to sort of revisit their quantitative easing policies. And they're one, and, and then they're turning around and blaming the crypto markets for volatility. You know, I, it's, it's a little bit of a uh, of an unfair assessment when you consider sort of where all this money originally came from over the last two years. Right. And just to go back to Patrick Brown's sort of straw man, it's like, you know, with any investment strategy, you're not going to put all your eggs in one basket, right? Like you're even even if, if you're playing, if you're putting money in the stock market in a mutual fund or an index fund, it's like you're going to put some money in, you know, energy stocks, some money in tech, and you're going to try to have a very diversified portfolio. And so why not include precious metals or decentralized currency? Matt, I'm really glad you mentioned inflation, because one of the things that I, I sort of get frustrated upon, uh, you have you know, Prime Minister of our country who openly admitted during the last election that he doesn't really think about monetary policy doesn't really care. Uh, you know, he, he, he did go on to say that, you know, what he thinks about his families and how they can afford things. But how can you decouple those those two? Uh, the, the, the line from the administration, which is parroted by the legacy media, is that inflation is just caused by global forces. And it has nothing to do with monetary policy, nothing to do with the Bank of Canada, nothing to do with the debt that Justin Trudeau has uh, acquired during the pandemic. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could if you could sort of comment and help us understand the connection between monetary policy, how, how the government spends and, and the printing of money uh, with inflation and, and, and sort of help help clarify that issue a little bit. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I won't pretend to be an economist or somebody who's got, you know, a deep, a deep background in monetary policy. But, but I think, you know, the really, the, the basics in my mind are that we, we live within a system of fiat currency, which effectively means uh, governments can decide through their central banks, but also through their own, their own fiscal policy, how much uh, how much debt they want to take on, how much money they want in the economy. Um, and, and generally, the money that we have in our wallets or in our bank accounts is all just backed by our level of com confidence in our government's ability to repay that debt. So we're effectively sitting on IOUs that we call Canadian dollars. These are IOUs that somebody will honor the value of that dollar when it comes time for me to actually uh, withdraw it from my account and spend it in the economy. Um, as as the the proportion of how much of these IOUs sort of exist, that this is you know as, as central banks inflate the the, the, the currency supply, uh, the level of confidence sort of decreases over time. And and you know we we don't see the huge uh, negative consequences the way that you might in in, in economies where there is more hyper hyperinflationary environments. But um, you know we're on a slippery slope towards a. A, a set of Western, you know, what historically would have been stable economies that have gone probably a few steps too far in overusing this lever. Um, you know, it's easy to point to the world's average inflation and say, hey, it's not our fault. It's really the world is going down this, this, this path. But I think it really points to the fact that most Western economies are suffering from the exact same, uh, the same illness. It's, it's governments that don't know how to constrain themselves. It's governments that would rather spend and be responsible and think about sort of the future impacts of their decisions. Um, you know, Bitcoin in this context is really interesting to me because it sort of brings us back to a conversation around um, a, a, a sort of hard money standard. You know, in, in, before the 1970s, the world existed on a gold standard for the most part. Um, and the gold standard effectively restrained government's ability to decide unilaterally how much money they wanted to put into their economies because their money, in theory, was backed by physical reserves of gold. And, and you know, I think it was the, the Nixon administration that sort of started pushing away from this in the 1970s. But 
um, because they wanted to spend more than they had in their reserves. And, and naturally, there was a tendency, and then every government around the world that had sort of pegged themselves to the US dollar, which was quite common after World War II, all of a sudden had to decouple their pegs from the US dollar and all start moving towards this sort of fiat standard. Um, and it, it started this, this, um, this very quick path towards government debt being a, a norm. Um, and I think there are scenarios when government debt is totally appropriate, but when it becomes sort of like our, our, our modus operandi, we don't know how to operate without debt. I think it leads to, to, to potentially a slippery slope that we're going to start feeling the consequences of in our generation, maybe not our parents' generations, but um, yeah. Well, Canada's lived through it, right? Like any, anyone who's familiar with the financial situation I've studied a little bit in the 90s, uh, Canada couldn't find anyone to buy our debt. And the New York, uh, the Wall Street Journal infamously uh, called Canada the Canadian dollar the northern peso and, and said we were basically an honorary part of the third world and basically caused the liberal governments under Jean Chrétien and his finance minister, Paul Martin, had to drastically, drastically, drastically reduce the size of government. So we've, we've been there uh, as a country. We've learned that lesson. It seemed the norm was heading back towards fiscal responsibility and balanced budgets until Justin Trudeau uh, rolled around and, and really did something unprecedented with the amount of, of spending. Uh, well, thanks for clarifying that. I, d I did want to ask you a little bit about the politics on the conservative side because Pierre Polyev was getting uh, sort of attacked from all sides on uh, during the debate last last week. Uh, there, you know, there's two components of it that were interesting to me. One, Lesson Lewis's attack sort of fell flat because she didn't really seem to understand the difference between. Uh, like I said, the uh, decentralized currency and a government digital currency. Um, but 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 th there is some truth to the attack that Patrick Brown was saying because Pierre, uh, at a campaign stop in London, Ontario, back in March, uh, he said that Bitcoin lets Canadians opt out of inflation. Uh, Canadians need more financial freedom. He said that the government is running the Canadian dollar, so Canadians should have the financial freedom to use other money such as Bitcoin. Canadians need less financial control for politicians and bankers and more financial freedom. For the people, obviously, you know, like we mentioned, the price of Bitcoin's gone down pretty tremendously. Um, so I, I'm, I'm wondering what you think of the lines of attack, uh, Pierre's uh, line there about uh, opting out of inflation. Um, do, do, do you think do you think Pierre's onto something, or do you think he was being a little reckless with that comment? Um, I mean, I don't think he was being reckless. I think he's trying to make a point that requires a little bit of exaggeration to say, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, his, his, uh, his critics will, will obviously jump to the most extreme interpretation of what he was trying to say. And, and this is what his opponents in the conservative race have been sort of accusing him of, is, is suggesting that we should all be fleeing away from the Canadian dollar towards Bitcoin, um, which I don't think is what he intends. I mean, I, I, in fact, I know it's not what he intends to say when he talks about this. I think he's talking about a design of a monetary system that is worth uh, us having an open mind to. It's worth us as a country encouraging our citizens to be more educated on and, 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 and frankly, designing policies that don't penalize people if they want to uh, be exposed in this market. And you know, at that, that, that stop in London that you're referencing, in particular, that shawarma business is a business that, as an example, decided you know over the last couple of years to shift some of its balance sheet from Canadian dollars into Bitcoin, as an example. Um, you know, I think where where Pierre's message really resonates with me is that a lot of this comes down to individual choice. Uh, you know, what what national currencies represent effectively is a monopoly on how we how we decide to spend money and how we decide to save money. And so you you know historically you've been sort of locked into your national economy from the perspective of like even if you live in a country where you really don't trust the monetary policy, you have no choice but to hold your life savings in that in that reserve currency. Uh, your bank accounts will only hold that currency. Your, the stores in your local city will only accept that currency. Um, and you're sort of trapped. If all of a sudden you feel like your government is going in a direction that you disagree with, there's not a very easy path to call it 
exit your national economy, right? Uh, I think Bitcoin definitely, and, and, and some of these other cryptocurrency experiments that are, that are popping up, they represent a potential choice for customers. It doesn't mean that they, they automatically go and replace our, our dependence on a Canadian dollar. Uh, but to your point earlier, I think this, it's a very reasonable thing to say that people's portfolios could have some exposure to this space. I think that exposure should, should, um, should match the risk profile, right? So the risk profile of this industry is still quite high. Uh, you know, so maybe that means that people hold 1% of their assets in Bitcoin. You know, nobody's suggesting that you go put 100% of your assets in, into this volatile asset class. Uh, but it will continue to evolve and continue to grow and continue to represent a larger and larger percentage of the global economy. And I, I fundamentally believe that that's true. It's not a matter of, of if, but when. And these little moments of volatility that we're experiencing, I mean, the best thing that I like to do is I, I sort of like to say to people, zoom out. You know, on a month-to-month basis, it might look very volatile. But if you look at a trajectory, if you look at a trend line that sort of averages out the prices over a two-year historic trend line, it's it's been a very very good, well-performing asset over, over its life. You know, it's maybe a 13-year-old asset or something around there. And you know, two years out, if you average out the price movements over two-year periods, it has consistently performed. And and this is while less than five percent of the world actually owns Bitcoin. I, I tell people who have a better understanding of, of sort of how gold fits into the global economy, like. Imagine if the world was just first discovering gold, you know, what would be the, the reaction to people if they started realizing that there's this asset that people care about? We'd see huge volatility in gold markets. The only reason we don't is because gold has sort of established itself as a normal asset over hundreds and hundreds of years. Bitcoin is just on its way up towards, um, you know, a similar status, I would say. And, and you know, my, my big bet in this space that I've, I've been very bullish on for a long time is that Bitcoin will probably o- overtake the markets for gold in the next five to 10 years and could become a new gold standard-like asset. That doesn't mean that national governments are going to flee to Bitcoin. I think there is a need to have your own monetary policy in your country, but there's also a need to constrain government's ability to just spend recklessly and print money recklessly, and hopefully this introduces a balance. Well, and it's interesting, just uh, historically, whenever there's a recession, I don't know if we're in a recession or heading towards a recession, it seems like that's the direction we're going. It seems like there's always a lot of panic and people sell, which is the worst idea when an asset goes down, whether it's a stock market or Bitcoin, like don't sell, hold and and see what happens. That's sort of the advice that uh, I I seem to think is the best uh, from financial advisors I I listen to and talk to. Uh, I want to touch on this idea of the difference between Bitcoin and a central bank digital currency. You, you tweeted in response to Pierre Polyev, uh, if Bitcoin represents monetary freedom, the central bank digital currency represents monetary surveillance and control. So Matt, what is the risk of a Bank of Canada creating its own competing digital currency? I, I think there's probably two two big themes here. One, one is more a theme of just like modernizing and bringing technology into our monetary system, which I think generally speaking, we should all be in favor of. Uh, a lot of the, the rails and, and the payment systems that we rely on as a country are quite antiquated. You know, they were built decades and decades ago, and they lead to a lot of inefficiencies in our banking system. This is what you experience as a consumer if you want to transfer money to, a, to somebody else's account and there's a two-day delay or anything along those lines sort of represents these inefficiencies that still exist in our banking, in our banking system. Um, so I think if, if the conversation is should we be modernizing and bringing technology into our monetary system, then I, I think, you know, we should all be encouraging of that. I think the risk is that what digital currencies represent is effectively a new vehicle to replace cash. Um, and, and what cash is, uh, fundamentally, is an anonymous way to transact. Um, and, and I think it's, it's extremely important in a, in a country that sort of prioritizes freedom, um, that we maintain the ability for our citizens and our, uh, to, to transact anonymously. I mean, you can imagine 
you know, the, the, the dystopian view of every time you go buy a pack of cigarettes, uh, your insurance company finds out about it and your premiums go up because you're now you represent a higher health risk or whatever. Right. So, um, and, uh, you know, probably more recent examples around what, uh, what happened uh, with the, the trucker convoys in Ottawa and across the country over the last couple of months, uh, the ability for, for governments to sort of step in and freeze bank accounts and, and sort of in, get, interfere with what is two, uh, you know, adults wanting to transact with each other. Uh, and in what ended up being lawful, you know, in, in, in lawful circumstances. And so I think what, what I worry about is that governments will not stop at modernizing and using technology to make our systems more efficient. They will realize that this technology provides them new tools and new levers that they haven't previously had. The government today could not theoretically freeze a $100 bill sitting in your wallet. But if it's a digital $100 bill that they've issued to you, then all of a sudden they can theoretically freeze it. So this, this move away from cash towards digital cash effectively, controlled and managed by uh, a central bank, but with significant influence from a government. Uh, I think it should be cause for, for, for skepticism. I think there are ways to, to have technology without censorship. I think it probably needs to be something that gets discussed in, in, in terms of policy and legislation, uh, where, where we, we think about this very carefully before we rush to implement anything. I mean, the, the, best, the, the best anecdote I can sort of say around why I'm cautious about this is that the first government to do this at scale in the world is the Bank of China. Um, so you ask yourself why the Bank of China rushed down the path of building a central currency. It wasn't to provide more freedom to their, their, to their people. It was to provide, it was to create more capital controls and to be able to effectively uh, observe in real time what's happening in the economy uh, from people sending money to each other on their cell phones and peer-to-peer -peer payments, people buying groceries at the grocery store. Uh, that control, we should be very careful before we just hand it over blindly to a government in the name of efficiency. Um, you know, Bitcoin, as, a, as an example, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, um, is, again, more of a representation of something analogous to gold, but with, with easier ability to transfer it and send it to each other because you don't have to carry around heavy gold bricks in your wallet. A government could not change the supply of gold. They could not decide that the gold you own in your, your home safe is no longer valid. Uh, you know, so it has characteristics that, that, that keep it valuable, irrespective of the government of the day. Um, and I think that, you know, it's important that we have that option in, in, in you know, in, in the world. So I don't think it's a one or the other. I think if we're going to go down the path of digital, digitizing our, our, our monetary systems, uh, we need to be very, very thoughtful before we rush down that path. Well, I'm glad you brought up the trucker convoy and the seizing of bank accounts because that was probably one of the most terrifying things that has happened uh, so, so far this year, so far in this administration. And I think it, it really raised a lot of concerns, not just in conservative circles in Canada, uh, but in technology circles. And uh, people of the world were sort of like, okay, this could be a potential roadmap for authoritarian and totalitarian regimes. One of the things that Finance Minister Christia Freeland said was that they were also going to be cracking down on Bitcoin and Ethereum and NFTs and, and, and these other sort of decentralized modes. Do you think that the Canadian government has that power? Do they have that authority? Do you think that they will be able to step in and, and, and stop those kinds of transactions? Because isn't the whole purpose of, of decentralized um, not giving the government control? So what did you make of Christia Freeland's uh, comments about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think before I answer that, I'll say that anybody should be concerned about what happened at the trucker convoy, not, not simply whether or not you agreed with, with that group and that protest and, and, and whether you support the current government or not. I think the idea that any government in power, whether it be liberal, conservative, NDP, whatever, uh, has the, the, the authority and, and the levers to, um, 
to silence their their critics and their their opponents. Uh, if it were a conservative government and this were a, a protest uh, on, on a progressive issue against a, a you know, let's say Stephen Harper was still in office, you wouldn't want Stephen Harper to have the ability to do what, what Justin Trudeau did during that during that time. So I think we really need to approach these things, you know, with a nonpartisan lens that this is just a lever of control, that if we hand this to government, it is impossible to pull it back. Um, and we need to be very, very careful about that. And, and, and I think, you know, some people will sort of speak to this being, you know, a, a step towards conspiracy theories, but it's just, you know, once you hand a lever over, you're never getting it back. And so uh, as it relates to Christian Phelan's comments, I mean, I do think they're concerning. I think there's still highlights in my mind that there's a giant misunderstanding around what this technology is and how it works and what it represents. Um, even the language being used, not only by, by Christian Freeland, but also by some candidates on the, in the conservative race today, Leslie Lewis would be a good example. As they speak about it and you, they, they have a choice of words when they're describing it, you can tell that they have a very significant lack of understanding. Um, you know, it, it is a little bit um, contradictory what Christopher Phelan is suggesting, but the government does have the ability to make this industry um, uh, suffer through frictions that it otherwise wouldn't have to suffer through. I mean, there are regulatory boundaries around this industry. If you want to be able to interact with a Bitcoin exchange and connect your bank account or or open an account with, uh, you know, most of these exchanges in the Canadian context have something analogous to sort of know your client and anti-money laundering process that is that is regulated by either provincial or federal government regulators, depending on context. Uh, the Ontario Securities Commission and its sort of counterparts across the country are quite heavily involved in this space. Um, the government can make this industry's life more difficult. Uh, it cannot wish away the existence of this industry. And so I, I think where, where we run a risk as a country is if we tighten our grip too much, we're, we're effectively pushing people to countries that are more open-minded and welcoming to the innovation that's happening in the space. And, and over the long term, Canada will just be uh, on the losing side of that, of, of that bet. And, and, you know, this innovation is happening. We've already seen flights of capital, flights of talent, to countries that have been more receptive and open-minded. And I think there is a way to balance uh, an openness to innovation with some protections and regulations and sort of some baseline rules uh, that the industry should be uh, expected to adhere to. Um, but to try to, to, to pretend that you can sort of put the genie back in the bottle, uh, I think is, is naive and, and is gonna lead to some really bad policy decisions. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I think, you know, my husband and I lived in the Silicon Valley for a few years. And uh, one of the things I was sort of struck by was how many Canadians there were down there. There's Canadians in every company. Someone told me there's 100,000 Canadians that live just in the Bay Area. And there were a lot of Canadian events. And it, to me, it almost struck me as a little sad that so many Canadians leave Canada uh, to go to the Silicon Valley. And I know this phenomenon happens, uh, you know, in Hollywood and in music and in finance, like in New York is also full of Canadians working on Wall Street. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I wish Canada did more to retain that talent and to uh, promote at home. You wrote a great piece uh, over in the hub where you talked about Canada needs a new infectious variant of entrepreneurship. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, just final question for you here. Um, what, what can Canada do to uh, keep more entrepreneurs, to attract more entrepreneurs, to encourage uh, more Canadians to become entrepreneurs? Like what is Canada doing wrong and, and how can we create a better environment to, to, to keep these kind of tech people that, that, that tend to leave and, and go, you know, create businesses and make their millions elsewhere? Yeah, I, mean, I think without getting into sort of like policy prescriptions, you know, Christopher Freeland's comments on Bitcoin is a good example in my mind. Like what, what exists in Silicon Valley that doesn't exist in many other places in the world 
is is an, is an openness to sort of the the, the crazy idea the, per, the the person who who's sitting in the coffee shop talking about something that in most contexts people would roll their eyes at this person and say listen to that crazy person talking about this idea in silicon valley that's the norm right you you're everybody is expected to be thinking outside of the box is expected to be talking about ideas that are so far-fetched today uh, but ultimately lead to the, the big breakthroughs and innovations that we that come to become normal 10 years later, 20 years later, right? And uh, whether that's the internet in the 1980s and 1990s, whether that's cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, you know, in the, in the last decade, you know, imagine listening to the person who was going to describe uh, the Airbnb business to you before Airbnb became normal. I mean, in, in, in Canada, we would have sort of laughed that person out of the room. In Silicon Valley, that was an opportunity to bet on a contrarian idea, um, I think we are there's a there's a cultural gap that that you know we can we can solve for by effectively encouraging more people that think this way to to act, to congregate right like a, there's a concentration of people like this there's a density of, of outside of the box thinkers in Silicon Valley that means that the moment you say a crazy idea you're not automatically discouraged you're sort of your people are saying oh no way yeah tell me how you would do that like and 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 it sort of pushes you down that path as opposed to pushing you to sort of like reconsidering your crazy idea and going for something maybe a little bit more reasonable and tame. Uh, the best businesses of the last, you know, 20 years were not reasonable in their ambitions. They were, they were, up, they were very crazy ideas in their time. Um, and I, I think as a country, we need to be much more open to things that we don't understand. We need to, we need to give the default assumption to entrepreneurs that what they're, what they're talking about and what they're working on is valid and worth pursuing. Um, and, you know, all this to say that most entrepreneurs fail. Most business ideas turn out to not be valid or, or not be uh, successful. But it's in the process of allowing sort of a thousand experiments to happen that one really world-changing breakthrough sort of pops through. But if, if you're squashing these ideas before they have a chance to blossom, then that'll never happen. And so, um, you know, the government tends to approach this more from a perspective of like, how can we throw money at, you know, more, more government-funded incubators and, and innovation programs and super clusters? And, but ultimately, it doesn't change this, like, you know, are we receptive to new ideas? Are we receptive to people that are, that are going to go against the grain uh, to create sort of new norms in the future? Well, if anything, it sort of bogs down entrepreneurs because they end up having to fill out government forms to try to apply for certain innovation grants, and 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 it doesn't really lead them in the direction of of true entrepreneurship. Well, Matt, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and giving the uh, great explanations that you did. And I, I I love your sort of optimistic entrepreneurship uh, spirit. I hope that that, uh, that 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 spreads and that there's more much 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 more of that in Canada. We really appreciate uh, you coming on the show today. Thanks, Candice. Right, that is Matt Spoke. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is the Kenneth Malcolm Show. Mm-hmm.